Welcome to the De-School Yourself podcast, healing the 15,000-hour infliction of public school. Hosted by Zach Slayback and Jeff Till. This installment is called The Infliction of 15,000 Hours of Schooling. We, we, when we were born, until around age five, when our more formal education began, we, we asked questions. We were curious about the world. We, we, were, we were young. We wanted to, we were, we were tinkering with ideas. We really didn't know what to do. We were just trying to figure out what reality really was. But then age five comes around, formal education, then all the joy comes, goes away. It, it just evaporates out of thin air. Um, and so what happens is that what learning comes to be, it, it goes away from this questioning and skepticism style of, of thinking to more of drill, kill, bubble fill. Kids are told to read textbooks, they're um, forced to fill out worksheets, and this is really how re the real, real, world fun real world functions. And what I like to say is that kids literally get arrested and get thrown into this Alcatraz-like system. I mean, if you look at prisons and schools, they're pretty similar. I mean, in prison and school, you're basically told what to do all day. Um, your bells dictate your schedule. Attendance is compulsory. Um, and you're really cut off from society. The first thing that astonished us in shadowing the kids through school was how low the quality of their daily experience was and, and how absolutely boring it was. Uh, their favorite metaphor for school was prison. And in fact, it was kind of like that. You know, you're told where to go, you're told where to sit, and you're talked to, you're lectured at. So the boys were looking for something that was purposeful, that was immediately functional, that engaged them, where they were gonna make or do something that was usable, where their competence was actually being challenged and developed. You know, I'm, I'm totally with them on all of those counts. You know, you don't learn by being told what to think. One boy said, all you do in school is play guess what the teacher already knows. That doesn't lead to learning or expertise or understanding or use in any domain. Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the, the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid, things you liked, on the ground you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician. Don't do art, you won't be an artist. Uh, benign advice. Now profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities designed the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not. Because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatized. Why does high school suck so much? Hmm. Because they place rote memorization over critical thinking skills and are therefore not adapted to producing human beings who can successfully navigate an ever-changing world. They don't teach logic. They don't teach reason. They place people into an academic competition, which might be okay if it weren't for the fact that the curriculum is designed to produce drones. You're all competing to see who can be the best drone. The teachers are mostly bitter and inept, 
And I don't blame them given their work conditions. How can you honestly expect one person to attend to the needs of huge classes of 20 people or more with unique personalities and different ways of learning? Granted, class sizes depend considerably on the region of the country where your high school is located. They place extreme emphasis on standardized tests, which are horrible. All anyone learns from that is how to pass a fucking standardized test. They create arbitrary rules that make no sense at all and are rigidly enforced at all times. This continues to plague us well beyond high school, unfortunately. Just about everybody has gone through the schooling process, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't really sit and stop and contemplate what it actually did to them, since it's right. such a uh, state of nature in our current society. And with everyone we know, we just presume that its its outcomes were benign and right. that it really didn't do any damage. Would you say that's an accurate statement? Oh, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, if you try to ask people to imagine a world without school, usually their first questions jump over to, like, how will people learn, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's that schooling and learning have become the same exact thing, and they can't even imagine a world in which other ways of learning exist, which like right now in U.S. history, at least, is, is kind of a weird time because it's the first time. And I think we touched on this in an earlier recording uh, with Dr. Gray, but it's the first time ever that you've had so many people who have been through school. Pretty much everybody has been through school K through 12 save some homeschoolers. So we've really truly reached this point where it is viewed as, as you noted, like this state of nature. Simultaneously, there's this, there's some of this optimism that you could have that uh, there is a jump in home education. There is uh, an increase in alternatives to traditional compulsory state schooling. But I think that people have been through it so much. Their parents have been through it. Their children are going through it that they can't even imagine a world in which people can learn well without school. I wanted to go and talk about the, the history of schooling for just a little bit. And it's my opinion generally that anytime you want to pass on bad ideas or bad behavior that's unnatural to a person is that you have to do it when they're a child. It's very hard to make compliant citizens, you know, obedient soldiers and whatnot without taking them over as children and spending a huge amount of time stuffing these ideas into their head. And that was precisely as uh, we, we've learned uh, from John Taylor Gatto, what the invention of school originally was. And it, you could trace it back to Spartan times when they needed to raise perfect soldiers. Uh, he, he often talks about 150 years ago in the Prussian system of realizing that soldiers weren't willing to die for God and country and the best way to make them obedient was to put them through school as children. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, recently held a roundtable discussion where two of the readings we did, it was on compulsory state schooling. One was uh, Gatto's essay from Harper's Weekly called Against School. Great, short little essay, uh, very well, well written, good introduction to a lot of these ideas. And the other was one of uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte's essays mm -hmm. and Fichte was you know there, there are certain thinkers <laughs> that if you look at the libraries of bad people throughout history that these thinkers just come up in multiple people's libraries uh marx is one i think uh 
Kant is another. Kant just comes up in a lot of people's libraries, though, too. And Fichte. And Fichte was a Prussian thinker uh, around the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And, you know, Gatto tells the story that the uh, Prussians were had multiple incidents where their soldiers would just get up and run uh, from from French armies uh, during the Franco-Prussian Wars. And that's what any normal person would do, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they realized that's because they weren't able to make this appeal to God anymore, right? Because in classical times, what you could do, uh, and in medieval times, what you could do is that you could make the case that people really don't even have free will, that all their actions are dictated or ought to be dictated by some some sort of div- divine will, right? Divine command. And when you saw modernity roll around, which the Prussians saw uh, in a very kind of fragmented way because the the state itself was so fragmented is that religion started to fall away and they couldn't make this appeal as easily to like oh this is what god commands or what divine will what the what the king demands that you do uh, as a surrogate of god in order to be a decent person so what they needed to do was they needed to find some kind of way okay how else can we usurp this idea of free will and Gatto tells it that what they do is they essentially make the state become God. Uh, and if you actually go back and you read Fichte's essay, it's this terrifying essay. I was standing around waiting for uh, – it's part of the Addresses to the German Nation. Uh, I forget which specific, specific essay it was. I believe it's number five. But I was standing around at the conference uh, waiting to do the roundtable that I was leading. And one of the attendees who had registered for it walked up to me and he, and he said, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to a discussion later. And I told him, oh, great, I'm looking forward to it as well. And he just looks at me, and his, his face just kind of goes pale. And he's like, that essay was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized he didn't mean the Gatto essay. He meant the Fichte essay. And it's because what Fichte talks about is you want to cre- you want to take children, you want to put them in their own communities where they only interact with other children, and you want to make it so painful, so painful for them to do beyond to do otherwise than what the school system and the state commands that they do to the point that they can't even conceive of the idea of having their own choices you want to stamp out free will at its source and the way you do that is you take children you put them around a bunch of other children so they don't see people who have actually experienced free will and then you put them through this kind of command control system what's kind of sad now is um there isn't anyone anymore advocating for the mind control of children. There's not a philosophy behind it that says we're doing this on purpose. So that philosophy eventually came to the U.S. Uh, via Horace Mann, right? And right. and was sponsored by you know the Gilded Age industrialists who who desperately needed not you know not soldiers so much anymore, but sort exactly. of worker consumer. Uh, who was going to be willing to sit from you know nine to five doing tedious repetitive task, uh, you know being told when to have lunch at the ring of a bell. Well, and this is so this the, is one the same of the systems. That, Go ahead. Well, this is one of the points that Gatto makes though. Is like I, I'm talking about like crushing free will, and it sounds so ominous, but. I wish that this was, you know, the reason why I had to go back and find this Fichte essay for this roundtable, the Gatto essay was written in like 2003, is because nobody openly advocates for crushing the free will of, of children, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's put behind it's put behind other language like creating good citizens or civic duty and stuff like that, which is essentially at the same day the same thing. At the end of the day, a very similar thing. Um, but 
you have to go all the way back to actually the Prussians to find this clearly ominous intention, which is unfortunate, actually, because if you could find it being so overt and ominous later on in, say, progressive era thinkers, uh, Gilded Age industrialists, uh, you know, and like Jimmy Carter in the Department of Education, stuff like that, then it's something that you could like chop off the head of the source, right? Yeah. But yeah. it's actually much more nefarious than that. It runs much deeper. It's much more systemic. It's not a conspiracy. If it were a conspiracy, there'd be easy solutions to it. But it isn't. It's actually like so culturally ingrained that our language even reflects this confusion between school and education. Yeah. And it's not even – we can't even just uh, pin it straight just on one thinker or the government doing it to us because it's supported by almost every – uh, authority and institution we experience in our lives. It's our, our parents reinforce its value, our neighbors, uh, our, our peers, the school system itself, um, the, the, the economy, the industrial and service economy that we have uh, probably still tacitly supports the schooling process. And of course, the government is there, uh, both funding, funding the operation and com- compelling people to go. The the other sort of sad dimension about this is we can talk very coldly about how this is a system of indoctrination and how it creates dependence and a worship of authority and, and is of mind control. But when we take this to the individual level, and this is sort of what the whole this whole podcast is about, is that this is actually being done to people like you and I and like people who might be listening. And there's a personal damage that comes from this. So regardless if, even if you were to agree, if you, if you were like a supervillain and you agreed that it's important to make good worker citizens so the economy functions and we have human capital and that people will join the military and will be obedient to the government, you still have to be, look at those people as individuals and you have to look at yourself as an individual and say, well, that's great that, uh, you know, we have this vision for how society should be run, but, you know, you're ruining people like me in the process, and I don't want to be ruined. We still will run into people who support the school, and I think they they still use those human capital um, type arguments that, you know, people have to learn how to, you know, how, how to withstand the toil of work. They have to learn how to be members of the economy. They have to be, you know, learn how to... Um, you know, have a job where they're told what to do. And, right, which and, which I, I always find it so fascinating when I when I bring up the issue of schooling and that school should not be compulsory. You know, sometimes people try to like pin it as like that I'm some sort of cynic or negative person because I just paint the facts of like how school started and became compulsory in the United States. And I, I'm always shocked because I find that the perspective that you're describing right now, Jeff, is the one that's cynical. It's the one who's that's pessimistic. That, you know, uh, yeah, I know you had a blog post at one point where you talk about the effects of schooling and the schoolwork uh, problems that people have, and somebody commented on it. Something extremely depressing, like, oh well, that's just, you know, I want my children to have their dreams crushed, yeah, <laughs> so that it doesn't ha- It should their dreams should get crushed when they're young, so it doesn't happen later in life. And I, I just find that astonishing because if we do believe that, you know, uh, people have that, that human capacities and human talent and abilities are multifaceted and not simply on a two way spectrum, 
then one of the common traits you do find on a lot of people who do end up being very successful in however they define themselves, whether that's in their family lives, uh, professional lives, uh, charitable giving, whatever it is, is that they do tend to have a, a much higher a much better opportunity to actually preserve these kinds of passions and interests that they had as children, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost a cliche uh, uh, amongst um, hyper-successful people. You know, the the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, who, um, who, who realize sooner than later that they have to separate themselves from institutional I believe learning. I believe both of the Google co-founders actually went to a Montessori school as well. And, you know, to do that is, is are people who have to reverse... Reverse the the mind control, the the you know the bow to authority, all of the negative things at school happens, and that's sort of what we're we're trying to present here. And in, in, in uh, later episodes uh, of this, we're going to talk about how to reclaim that after you know school has ruined it for you. So Gatto talks about these these seven different purposes of schooling, which are actually really quite explicit in some of the earlier thinkers' works, uh, Fichte in particular, but. Uh, Fichte, Inglis, and others. Uh, and when you read through them again, it sounds conspiratorial, but if you couch them in terms of your own experience in school, you know, he talks about provisional self esteem, for example, or fixed habits of reaction to authority, right? Mm-hmm. Like, as a, as a child, uh, by the time you are in eighth, ninth grade, everybody reacts the same way to the bell coming at the end of the day. Uh, to the class, or they all react the same way when their name is called out by someone who stands at the front of the room, right? Mm-hmm. And when you actually couch it in terms of your own experience with school, I actually think it seems considerably less conspiratorial, considerably less wacky, and something that you can actually uh, apply directly to your life. So let, let's go through these, right? Sure. Can I, um, um, I just have to I really want to read just a few sentences from Gatto's uh, source material, which is dumbing us down. And I have to apologize, Zach. I have uh, the second edition here, which doesn't have your forward in it. So well, my forward doesn't come out until early next year, so you're okay. Okay. Well, this podcast is going to be just going to live on for centuries. So, so what, if, if if you're listening to this and we haven't cut this part out, then go and buy the twenty fifth, twenty fifth, twentieth, twenty fifth. Anniversary edition uh, that has the foreword by Zachary Slayback. You won't regret it. So the first lesson is confusion. The first lesson I teach is confusion. Everything I teach is out of context. I teach the unrelating of everything. I teach disconnections. I teach too much. The orbiting of planets, the law of large numbers, slavery, adjectives, architectural drawing, dance, gymnasium, choral singing, assemblies, surprise guests, fire drills, computer languages, parents' night, staff development days, pull-out programs, guidance with strangers my students may never see again, standardized test, age segregation, unlike anything seen in the outside world. What do any of these things have to do with each other? So that's the first lesson of school, is almost to uh, treat all information as being sort of arbitrary, equal, important, when it, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. It also tends to teach busyness, you know? Yeah. Just if you read through that list, you know, busyness is not something that's inherently valuable. Tim Ferriss is really, really good on pointing this out uh, in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, but you've pointed this out before too, Jeff. If you just read through that list, if you read through all the things you have to go through in a day of school, 
you wake up, you roll out of bed, you go brush your teeth, you uh, eat breakfast, you grab everything for school, you put on your shoes, you put on, uh, you grab your homework, you walk out the door, you wait for the school bus, you get on the school bus, you find your seat on the school bus, you uh, the school bus pulls up to the school, you get off the school bus, you walk to your homeroom, from your homeroom, you fill out a little bit of paperwork, you put your stuff away, you get your books out, then the bell rings, you stand up, you do your prayer to the the flag, the Pledge of Allegiance, you walk to your first class, and then that goes on all all day. Is it no wonder that people have a really, really hard time being bored later on in life or being able to cope with free time? Yeah, and it just it sort of ruins um, any kind of love of learning that could possibly happen by having people uh, identify what they want to learn. Yeah. And I, I've realized this recently. I've written about this, but I, I don't think it's said enough, is that the things that you learn in school are they often leave off a lot of the interesting thing, interesting things like whether you know ethics or economics or uh, you know some of these tough subjects, and they also leave off anything leave off anything that's useful, such as what you'd need to live your life or to complete your job or to feed yourself. And the subjects I think they teach are all ones that they can fail to pass on. So there's nothing essential about school subjects, maybe save uh, for some reading writing and a bit of arithmetic that are really essential to learn. So they they purposely peel off a, a set of subjects that they can fail to teach you. And everything that's really critical to learn, like you know how you're going to live your life or what you find interesting, they don't dare teach because Because they can't, can't be held fail. accountable to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean that, that's that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, I can't go back to my school and say Oh, I was taught, you know, how to balance a checkbook poorly because I was never taught how to balance a checkbook, yeah. right? Not that people actually use real checkbooks anymore. Um, it, it, that's an interesting point because I run into, you know, I, I, I'm recording this right now. I'm up in, up in Pittsburgh uh, and I am recording this in Oakland, which is where a bunch of the universities in Pittsburgh are. Uh, and I've noticed talking to a lot of the students here, even at, you know, like Carnegie Mellon University, one of the best universities in the country, a lot of what they're being taught in computer science and engineering is not applicable in the real world. So that even on the collegiate level, they can't go back to the university and say, well, the university taught me how to program poorly because the university probably didn't even teach you, you had a program in a way that is applicable in the workforce today. I've talked to a number of people who, they went and they worked in, say, Silicon Valley for a year, right? And they did learn all these new skills there. Then they come back for school and they understand they're just jumping through the hoops with school. So the school isn't even teaching them like outdated ways of doing software engineering, for example. It's just teaching them the abstract theory and then leaving the rest for them to learn. So the school can't even be held accountable to their lack of learning in the first place. Yeah, it's insane. Um and and that would be uh, that doesn't even uh, start to go into confusing the person. It's just like it, it's confusing them and you know uh, pointing them in the wrong direction. Okay, the next one uh, two. The second lesson I teach is class position, and I'm just going to skip ahead here. If I do my job well, this is God was speaking as a teacher. The kids can't even imagine themselves somewhere else because I've shown them to envy and fear the better classes and how to have contempt for the dumb classes. Under this efficient discipline, the class mostly places itself into good marching order. That's the real lesson of any rigged competition like school. You come to know your place. 
So yeah, here, you know, this was an this was an interesting point because this one was brought up by one of the attendees at my roundtable discussion that I did, and he was you know he was trying to be charitable to the schools and he said, you know I went to a pretty good school blah 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 and I, the school I think did a pretty decent job of trying to encourage creative thinking and independent thought but really like what more can the school do. And I was just being the discussion leader, so I didn't want to tell him you know, these are the things the school would do, could do. But if we just look at this on a very young level, which Gatto points out, you know, you have to walk in single file line from classroom to classroom as a child, right? I remember very explicitly, I very much remember this. I had a teacher in, I want to say it was fifth grade, um, Mrs. Koshowitz, who... Uh, we were walking from one of her classes one day and I decided, you know, that I was in a good mood. I don't know why I just decided I was going to whistle a little tune <laughs> and she stopped the whole class in the hall, turned around, looked at all of us and demanded to know who was whistling. And everyone just fell dead silent because God forbid somebody step outside of the system of order that they had imposed in that system. Right. Mm hmm. And, and, and it's just little things like that. If you do that years and years and years when people are very, very young, by the time they are 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th graders, by the time they are 20, 30, 40 years old, they're going to think they're being creative thinkers and they're not because they have so much limited their ability to actually engage in creative thought because they have internalized these beliefs that engaging in what formerly would have been known as creative thought results in pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's disincentivized from a very, very young age. The other part about class position is um, they constantly want kids to be in constant comparison w with other groups, and they reinforce this, you know, through testing. And they definitely want to know, you know, almost advertised, you know, who, who who's bad at this, who's good at this, and you know what order it goes into. Put the gold stars up uh, for the kids who do well, which implies that if your name isn't next to a gold star, that you didn't do well. Yeah. So that's something that we had to endure and can last your whole life, as you were, you were just saying. You know, even even when you get into the the workplace or into the community, that damage is sort of permanent. And this doesn't even begin to touch on the subject of, you know, you're grouping people together by zip code. You're going to have a lot of these weird economic issues that are going to come out in schools as well. Like you're going to be the kid in the school who what if you're the kid in the school who bought their clothes at the thrift store, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas everybody else bought their clothes at Aeropostale or American Eagle or wherever parents buy clothes for kids nowadays. It, that itself is going to have a huge impact on this this idea of class position. So it's not just class position hierarchical within like the authoritative system of the teacher is supreme, the person at the front of the room, you must obey that kind of authority, but class position in uh, a an economic sense as well. Okay, the, uh, the third lesson I teach is indifference. I teach children not to care too much about anything, even though they want to make it appear that they do. How I do this is very subtle. I do it by demanding that they become totally involved in my lessons, jumping up and down in their seats with anticipation, competing vigorously with each other for my favor. It's heartwarming when they do that. It impresses everyone, even me. When I'm at my best, I plan lessons very carefully in order to produce this show of enthusiasm. But when the bell rings, I insist they drop whatever it is that we've been doing and proceed quickly to the next workstation. They must turn on and off like a light switch. 
Nothing important is ever finished in my class, nor in any class I know of. Students have a complete experience except on the installment plan. So here he's saying, you know, uh, that you will randomly switch topics regardless. Uh, so even if you're really into your math class at the time, the bell's going to ring after 45 minutes, and now you're going to go to uh, study poetry. And then yep. no matter how much you're into this or how incomplete the product, you know, the project is or how uh, how much you'd, you'd want to study that some more, you're then 45 minutes goes and your a bell rings and you have to go to a gym and play dodgeball. This this is a really important point, I think. Uh, you know, when I when I talk on the issue of school and education to people, people tend to get really, really caught up in little policy minutia or like the cost of school and things like that. But if if we think that education is important, if we think that learning is important, then the number one thing you want to prevent from people feeling is indifference. People learn quickly. They learn very well when they're actually interested in a subject. And one of the biggest like structural components here is the Gatto notes that I think is, is genius is the fact that in my school, I only had 39 minutes if I wanted to study any subject that I was interested in. 39 minutes. That if Anybody who's listening to this who has ever learned something on their own knows that that is totally insufficient to learn anything to a level that actually matters, right? Because if you are actually interested in something, you're going to fall into a state of flow. And in that state of flow, 39 minutes are going to go by like that. And you want to have yourself set up institutionally in such a way. Like we can we can move away from like the cultural issues of school. We want to have ourselves set up institutionally in such a way that you can fall into this state of deep work where you can sit down and if you're really interested in something, you can work on it for an hour without really being interrupted and without the bell going off, a teacher telling you you have to move around and to a point that you won't even know that it feels like an hour. That is, you know, that I think that kind of structural element about school is the most, one of the most destructive elements to actually having people learn. The most destructive element is the compulsory nature. But that probably takes a close second. Yeah, I wonder how, I'm sort of thinking and talking at the same time, if that's okay, but how that translates into the workplace and getting people to do work that they don't care about and being able to, you know, give someone the, the title of, you know, you're the, the uniform uh, leasing redemption manager for the Northeast and, you know, here's, here's this awful set of tasks that you have to do. And having that worker not only sort of accept them, but then sort of reverse out and take pride in their work. Because um, there's, you know, there's so many people who, who are dispassionate about the work that they do. You know, how, how necessary of a mechanism is this indifference to, to populating our workforce? At the same time, this is more, um, you know, how does our news cycle like we just went through the presidential election, you know, uh, does this have something to do with how we consume information as well nowadays as, as adults, you know, or as, a, you know, as a, as a group of people? Well, I, I don't, you know, you, you describe that job of like uniform distribution as if it's some sort of hellish nightmarish job. And I'm sure it's not anybody's like ideal job, but I would bet you that it's possible to find somebody who does actually really take pride in that, who isn't absurdly overschooled. 
I, I, I would think that it's actually this kind of schooling that prevents somebody from, you know, sucking it up and saying, okay, you know, like, yeah, this, this isn't great, but I'm going to make the most of it. And I'm going to become the best uniform distributor out there because it doesn't, because what they internalize is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you become the, the best uniform distributor out there for the Northeast corridor region of your company, because you've learned time and time again, that you're, even if you're something good at it, oh, time to drop it and go home and turn on the news, yeah. Yeah. pick up a beer and then change, change the state in which you're thinking. So there, I mean, we run into this huge chicken and egg problem here, right? But whether or not these things are inherently just terrible or if school is designed to make them seem less terrible or all these other elements there. And I, I think that's a slightly more complex topic. I do think there are certainly jobs out there that school is designed to just create great worker ants for. But I would bet you that you could find somebody I would bet you if you took two two people, right, and one person has been through this kind of school system that we're describing and one person hasn't, that the person who hasn't been through it will be just as likely, if not more, to actually find meaning in a job like that. Like an inherent meaning, not not a not an ex, not like an exogenous like, oh, the supervisor is going to come here and they're going to beat me if I don't uh, get this done kind of meaning. Yeah. Although um, at, at many workplaces, you'll find a, a look busy culture uh, where where the presence of activity sort of trumps the uh, the production of value. And that becomes the goal of work in itself is to, right. to make sure you have continuous tasks. I think that might be an effective school. So, of course, yeah. in, a, in a de-schooled society or an unschooled society, uh, uniforms still need to be distributed. But we can imagine perhaps how much more value or, or how much more speed or how much more creativity would be done to these tasks uh, instead of employers being unleashed into the workforce, you know, looking to be indifferent and finding, you know, busyness to be the highest value. Right. So, okay, not a complete thought on my part, but good enough for the Internet. The fourth lesson I teach is emotional dependency. By stars and red checks, smiles and frowns, prizes, honors, and disgraces, I teach kids to surrender their will to the predestined chain of command. Rights may be granted or withheld by any authority without appeal, because rights do not exist inside a school. I mean, this is anybody who has ever employed a millennial has experienced this, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I and I don't mean to get my old cane, my cane out here and like on some definitions of millennial, which is like such a weird, stupid. Uh, amorphous phrase uh, on some definitions of it I am included in that category so I'm saying that's all like with a grain of salt but you see this in people who have really come up through a society where you get that gold star you get that trophy you get that ribbon for everything you do right that kind of participation award and it's this is a really really you know one of the other points that Gatto makes is on provisional self-esteem so I won't get too far ahead of myself here but this is a really 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 difficult element to work with because you end up as a as a person who's been through this, and I and I like to think that myself, I've been I've done a pretty good job in my life of guarding against the uh, you know the, the check marks, the smiley faces, the gold ribbons, and all that kind of stuff. You feel gaslit at times, like the system is almost sociopathic, right? So for mm -hmm. those who aren't familiar with the idea of gaslighting, it's the idea of like when you're working with somebody, especially who's a sociopath, they make you feel like you're the crazy one, right? 
people talk about this a lot in relationships where you have a legitimate complaint about something and you want to raise it, you raise it to the person and they turn it on you. And now you seem like the crazy one. And this describes so much of my experience with school, at least is every yeah. time I've, I've come up with any issue with school, I, I feel like, am I, am I just being like an entitled millennial here? Or is this a legitimate problem that exists? And school kind of teaches you like, oh, well, no, it's not a legitimate problem. It's almost like reverse gaslighting. Let's put these next two together. Actually, I'm going to put four. We just did emotional dependency now with uh, intellectual dependency and provisional self-esteem. So I'm going to read both of these and then we can talk about it. Because I think there's sort of, I think all three of these are connected. Emotional dependency, intellectual dependency, and provisional self-esteem? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they certainly are. Uh, the fifth lesson I teach is intellectual dependency. Good students wait for a teacher to tell them what to do. This is the most important lesson of them all. We must wait for other people, better trained than ourselves, to make the meaning in our lives. The expert makes all the important choices. Only I, the teacher, can determine what my kids must study, or rather, only the people who pay me can make these decisions, which I then enforce. And then I only have a sentence highlighted here for number six, provisional self-esteem. Our world wouldn't survive a flood of confident people very long, so I teach that a kid's self-respect should depend on expert opinion. My kids are constantly evaluated and judged. So these, the, all three of these that we just did are very much a, an appeal to authority mm -hmm. and teaching that an external force is what determines our meaning and purpose in lives. Right. God. Yeah, and, and and I see this. I, I, there's there's a lot wrapped up here, right? These all these all three go together very very well, but at the same time, I, I can see why Gatto broke them apart into three separate categories. Th this kind of intellectual dependency is the one that I think is most nefarious. It's the most nefarious for learning. Like if we're doing this kind of analysis of school in this kind of framework that we think that learning is valuable and we want people to. We want people to put themselves in a framework and in a system where they themselves are the ones who are empowered to learn, then intellectual dependency is a huge, huge problem. Because one, if you actually look at the if you actually look at how much the experts tend to be right, they don't tend to be right that often. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there, there's that issue. I, I love uh, Nassim Taleb is particularly good at, at roasting these people. Uh, the author of Annie Fragile, The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness. He's got a great essay called Intellectual Yet Idiot. Uh, you can find it on Medium. And he talks about how there's a certain class of people who, who view themselves as experts, right? But if you actually look at their track record, they tend to be wrong just as often as they're right. Uh, the replicability of so, uh, studies in the social sciences is a great example. It's actually really quite low. Uh, I, I don't have the specific number in front of me. Or in non-social sciences and philosophy, there's this great instinct called the SoCal Affair, where somebody wrote a paper that was just total and complete jargon and submitted it to a prestigious journal of, of postmodern studies. And it got it got accepted. <laughs> And it was literally jargon. There was literally nothing said in this article. It was nonsense. And that's just a testament to the incentives that are playing at play in this institution. So these are the people to whom a lot of people outsource their own intellectual development. And, and there's this 
crazy idea wrapped up in all this, especially in K-12 education, that everybody needs to know and learn the same things on the same schedule at the same time. And if you actually look at people who, you know, I, I know a lot of people who say they hate math, right? Oh, I'm not good mm-hmm. at math. Uh, I, I, I'm just not good at math. And I, I think that's just like a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> I actually don't think anybody is naturally bad at math. You might find some people who are a little bit better at math than others, right? But I think that most people can probably do algebra at a fairly decent level. And um, honestly, beyond algebra, you probably don't even need to know math anyway that much. But what happened was that they were forced to learn it too early and without any kind of context or meaning in their lives for learning it, and they ended up resenting it. That's what happened. The same thing with reading, right? In a lot of cases of, say, Sudbury schools, it's very, very rare to find somebody who uh, has dyslexia at the school, and which raises the question of whether or not dyslexia is overdiagnosed in society and is similar to this kind of like hatred of math. If you teach somebody, oh, you're just not good at reading, you have this thing that makes it difficult for you to read, we're going to call it dyslexia and we're going to label you that way. But if you remove somebody from the, that kind of system of that kind of intellectual dependency of when they're allowed to learn and how they're allowed to develop, you'll tend to find that they can reverse a lot of those symptoms. So the intellectual dependency, I find a a particularly nefarious one because it is wrapped up a lot in this self-esteem one too, right? Like people who say, "I, I don't like math, so they choose not to even explore the idea of maybe becoming an engineer later in life. When in reality, if they had context for their relationship with math, they would actually be a great engineer, right? There's yeah, there's 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 a lot wrapped up in this. Yeah, and the the threats that um, are put upon children to to learn this sort of arbitrary raft of of things, you know, you know, they tell they basically imply that you know if if you don't learn you know if you don't learn how to read by this age or if you don't get this grade at you know at this this grade uh, that you're not going to succeed in getting into college and then you're not going to succeed in getting a mm-hmm. job and that you will forever yeah. be a poor and desperate loser. If you step outside of the, this very structured system of pats on the pats on the head, right? So, like, I I went to an Ivy League school, and a lot of my peers, I, I didn't graduate, but a lot of my peers who are graduating now are pro- probably have greater self esteem issues than a lot of people I know from my own high school who are in the trades now. But the way that school is kind of set up is it's a system designed. One of the things that I really wish Gatto would hit more on when he talks about the history of school is that. Where schools really started were with the clergy, right? Mm-hmm. And he kind of hints at this, but he doesn't hit and hint at it. He doesn't get at it as hard as I wish he would, which is that schools were originally designed as seminaries, as theological institutions, right? And then when you kind of had this falling out with God in during the Enlightenment and during the birth of modernity, you have to have some new kind of system to fill the void. Well, now you have a system that trains academicians, right? I'm not even going to use the phrase intellectuals. It trains academicians, people who are very good at being academics. And that's what school is designed to do for a lot of people. And when you move into a society that is very highly schooled, like what we're talking about here, the prestige is lauded upon the positions that are most directly attached to being academic, right? And this is more and more constantly, I I find it's more and more constantly the reality in the United States. If you read on US history for a long time, people lauded prestige on entrepreneurs, they lauded prestige on uh, you know, people who actually 
created value in the, their communities and their societies and their families. But now it's it's more and more, let's turn to the the intellectuals yet idiots, right? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's turn to the academicians, the experts. And you know we're we're talking about the outcome of the election here, and that just kind of shows that, Maybe this kind of schooling way of viewing prestige and viewing what people ought to strive for isn't accurately reflected in the rest of society. It was a bit rambly, but I, yeah. I hope that, that point well, is made. I, I did want to uh, talk. The election that we just went through is was sort of so terrifying for so many people because they have learned to not only just you know defer to authority, but sort of beg for it. Right, and at the same time, knowing that they're going to give this this authority, you know, which which is you know is emotional, is is intellectual to someone that they absolutely uh, are terrified of, is is sort of a double edged sword right there. Um, you know, but, to both to I both think... beg to beg for a leader, to beg for an authority, and then also to be terrified of the authority at the same time, <laughs> is is masochistic. Right, like, right. Uh, writ large, you know, writ it... um, across three hundred million people. And I think I think in particular the reaction to the election as well. And, and I, I'm not putting us down to like choose sides one way or the other, but I think that the reaction in particular in the in the last week or two is another embodiment of this idea of emotional, intellectual, and self-esteem dependency. Right. So people who have grown up in the school system that we have today especially millennials, you know, you're really seeing this among millennials. Millennials tend to, uh, young people tend to always be more liberal than older people, but I still find it fairly difficult to believe that this is normal. They, they're just dumbfounded, dumbfounded by the outcome of this election because everybody that they have lauded praise on, everybody that they have held in high esteem throughout their lives has been wrong. A lot of the people who are in the highest esteem of, you know, especially high function uh, of of high caliber young people by the school's definition. So people who are going to like coastal schools, uh, Ivy League schools, prestigious schools like that. They look up to their professors. They look up to the pundits that they watch on TV who, you know, maybe went to school with some of their professors and things like that. And their professors were wrong. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge identity crisis that I am seeing among young people. You know, I'm here. Like I said, I'm. In the college part of Pittsburgh right now, and there was a protest the other night, like a huge protest uh, here at the University of Pittsburgh. And people are having serious identity issues here because every all the authorities in their lives who they looked up to because the school trains them to look up to these people were proven wrong. And I think that that's one of the really scariest elements of provisional self-esteem is provisional self-esteem is extremely disempowering. And what I mean by that, that that sounds like almost tautological, but what I really mean by that is provisional self-esteem is self-esteem that is dependent on other people's actions, decisions, and judgments, right? A disempowering belief is one that is one that is one that is not in your own control. And if you're going to be entirely dependent on the truth value of a professor's prediction about the election, then you're going to have a very disempowering view of the world and your place in it. Whereas if you understand, okay, I can do certain things in my life and the world is actually very multifaceted. It's not tracked like school presents it to be. It's possible like these academicians are very good at being academicians. I'm not going to say they're they're bad at everything. Mm-hmm. They're very good at being academicians, which if that's what you want to do and that's what you can add value in, great, absolutely, go do that. 
But maybe you should take a step back as a young person to understand I don't want to tie so much up so much of my understanding of the world. And this is one of the things I love about Gatto is, you know, he'll go through these explanations of this is what the school does, but end on this really empowering note that if you're a parent or if you're a student listening to this right now, understand that the power to inform yourself, the power to form your own opinions about the world around you is in your hands. There is no professor you have to wait for to tell you, hey, hey, go do this study in the world around you or uh, you know, sign up for this elective. You can just go out and you can talk to people and you'll get an idea of what the world is going to be like down the line from that. Yeah, so let's, let's tie that to our de-schooling yourself message. Yeah. Is, so if you're a person, and we talked about this in uh, I think the second or, or the first or second episode, um, who is either frustrated with externalities uh, uh, frustrated because an authority is telling you one thing that's contradictory to maybe what you really believe, um, that your ability to act on something is held in someone else's hands. If you're angry about what a politician does or, or what a stranger does, um, you know, all of these things might have their, their birthplace. You might've been infected in, in schooling where they, they purposely, made you emotionally dependent, intellectually dependent, and, you know, and had provisional self-esteem. So as an individual, if a great source of frustration is coming from your relationship with authority, then you might need to be de-schooled. I, I would say that's, that's accurate. Going through the process of building non-provisional self-esteem, like inherent self-esteem, self-esteem, is the process of choosing actively choosing empowering beliefs so like i said beliefs that the the outcome of them is not dependent entirely on other people or the decisions of other people in the world around you where it's largely in your own control and then acting in coherence with those so having a sense of integrity so nathaniel brandon is a great great author on these topics anyone who's listening who's interested in the subject of self-esteem go pick up one of brandon's books um a lot of people really like the six pillars of self-esteem I actually really like uh, The Psychology of Romantic Love because although it's a book on romantic love, there's a lot of good content in there on the structure of self-esteem and how to develop strong self-esteem. The really difficult thing, though, is when you realize, oh, I need to pick up these empowering beliefs is, as you noted, Jeff, you're learning a lot of these disempowering beliefs from people who themselves have have provisional self-esteem. Oh yeah, yeah. it's it's Good a point. really low it's a really lonely kind of process. Being somebody who is de-schooling themselves, you don't need to like run out into the street and tear your shirt off and say, oh, "I'm going to de-school myself," right? But when you realize that it's something that I need to actively choose my beliefs, I need to actively choose what I learn. I need to actively choose how I spend my time. I need to essentially turn my life off autopilot. You're going to be surrounded by, unless you are surrounded by a bunch of weirdos like I am, which is great, you're going to be actively surrounded by people, and many of whom you look up to, who themselves have yet to do this. That's really hard and really lonely. Mm -hmm. So my advice would be, if you're going through that, would be to sit down and seriously think about the beliefs that guide your decisions in the world. Not just around learning. Uh, I, I think that learning is the core of all of them. But 
Do you find that when you hear about something on the news, you feel disempowered? You feel less significant? You feel like your life is somehow worse? Like I, one of the things I, I love, we talked about this in, in an earlier episode, Jeff. One of the things I love about, about you is I, I sense that you have not like turned on CNN in like eight years. And yeah. I love that. Uh, you know, I, I'm unfortunate enough that I travel a lot. So I get stuck in airports where there's some evil person somewhere in this country who decided to put CNN on every TV in every airport in the country. And whoever they are, I am going to track you down because you've significant, significantly harmed the quality of my life. <laughs> but I, I, I am so astonished when I find people who the news will seriously affect their ability to live their lives happily. But I do think that that's something that's an element that comes out of school because you tend to internalize these beliefs from school that there are certain authority figures or there are certain things that they do not they do not directly affect your life, but they affect how you ought to judge yourself. So let's again think about uh, walking in line uh, or like asking asking to use the bathroom, right? This is this idea that's in, incredibly disempowering that somebody can't just get up and go exercise one of their bodily functions, right? Mm -hmm. But we teach children from a young age that they have to ask an authority figure who's totally arbitrary over them, just someone who was hired by the school board, who good chances are they were hired by the school board because they knew the school board, they had some sort of prior relationship with the school board, that this person gets to, gets to determine how you even use some of your basic bodily functions. Well, of course you are going to have weird relationships when you find out that some senator who is represents people thousands of miles away from you is uh it said something it's not going to affect you when i talk about uh unschooling my own children and people ask me like why or or you know how's it going and i i just want to say like um you know i, I just don't really want to send my kids uh to sit in some grubby room with a government employee uh who, who makes a crappy salary uh so that they you know they can ask permission when they go to the bathroom <laughs> um but you know to say that about my own children you know we have to say that about ourselves too is that at right. one point People who we loved very much, our parents sent us into some grubby room to uh, sit all day with a with a lowly paid government employee and ask you know and grovel to go to the bathroom. Okay, that was that was an ugly thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, last <laughs> that, that was a disempowering thought, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, part but of I mean, deschooling, by the way, part of deschooling is is one of healing yourself, dear audience, mm -hmm. and one of protecting your children. And not, yeah. not not having the same mistakes happen to them. Yeah. When I when I talk a lot about learning and relearning how to learn, uh, because I, I think that school is ultimately the place where, if you watch, you know, Peter Gray was great on this. If you watch young people learn, children learn, they learn very quickly and they learn very well. Um, school tends to be the place where you go to unlearn how to learn. So. If you're trying to learn how to de-school, I think one of the core concepts that you need to understand in any kind of learning is you need to have a strong enough reason why you want to do it, right? I, I think it's because everyone who you can point to who has gone through a process of de-schooling, whether they call it that or not, tends to live a much more fulfilled, happier life. <laughs> but if you're like me, if you're listening to this and you're like me and you don't have children yet, what makes me very motivated to kind of introspect and go through this process of de-schooling and to put content like this out here is because I have seen the effects of it on myself and I do not want that for my own children. And I don't want them to have to feel alone. My, and my parents, you know, were, were great parents. They did the best they could. Uh, but I don't want to go through that 
process. I don't want my children to go through that process themselves. Hopefully they never have to go through it, but I really don't want them to go through it alone. And I think that that's a fairly strong reason to be interested in this process of de-schooling and to try to actually internalize it every day when you're thinking about, okay, how, how do I relate to authority around me? How do I relate to, uh, interests and beliefs that I have? Yeah. And, and if you wanted to extend this to a, a vision for a more, you know, a happier, more peaceful society, I think this de-schooling process is essential to it. Uh, and especially handing it down to your children. But I always, you know, I like to think of things at the personal level, especially for this this conversation. Yeah. Um, okay, the last lesson of God 07. The seventh lesson I teach is that one can't hide. I teach students that they are always watched, that each is under constant surveillance by me and my colleagues. There are no private spaces for children. There is no private time. Class change lasts exactly 300 seconds to keep promiscuous fraternization at low levels. Students are encouraged to tattle on each other and even to tattle on their own parents. Of course, I encourage parents to file reports about their own child's waywardness too. A family trained to snitch on itself isn't likely to conceal any dangerous secrets. (sighs) I mean, this is just an extremely Orwellian idea too. Yeah. If you read 1984, people... (laughs) You have instances where people's families are, are snitching on them. The lack of private space is an interesting philosophical issue to me because I, I think that that's – if you don't have a private space, then let's go back to what I was talking about with Fichte, right? Where at the end of Fichte's uh, address to the German nation, the one that I was referring to, he talks about the importance of having these children in communities of children, right? With an authority figure looking over them, right? But if that's the case, then you fall into this kind of mimetic – atmosphere right where nobody knows what they want so they just want what other people want what you end up getting is the definition of success is what other people think the definition of success is Mm -hmm. and i i certainly i certainly see this this is probably one of the number one things i see among highly schooled high caliber by the school's definition young people if you go to an elite university very few young people there know why they want to be elite and if they do, it's usually because other people think that a particular job or career or uh, achievement that they're striving for is elite, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mimetic in the sense that everyone's mimicking everybody else. It's this idea from René Girard, uh, the, the French Christian philosopher, that people have mimetic desires, that they mimic other people's desires. And I think the lack of private space and the lack of private thought, the lack of headspace makes it that people don't have that opportunity to sit back and introspect. This also not having privacy and constant surveillance is part of authority because authority is first instilled by the the subjects belief that the authority is legitimate. Um, but there's also a, com- police, a policing or a compliance or punishment side to authority. And if you constantly felt feel like you're never alone and that you're always being watched, you're going to be you're going to change your behavior so that you, you know you're going to be compliant. You're not going to be punished, etc. So and if it's, you make it's private, if you make privacy something that's weird, right? Then anybody who requests privacy, oh, they have to be doing something wrong. And that's in the, and that's even sort of like a political meme right now, right? Uh, right? Between like you know the NSA spying or whatever. 
you know, part of me believes that they, you know, they want that news to be out there just to make us feel surveilled, regardless if they are, you know, it, it could be just a complete placebo of a program, you know, that they're not actually gathering any data and they don't know what to do with it. But just just having that feeling of of constant surveillance. And then a lot of people, you know, even defending it, feeling like it makes them feel more safe. We just we just went through the six hidden lessons of school from John Taylor Gatto, and I thought that Brett Vinat of the School Sucks podcast, he in his second series does the three hidden lessons of school, and his lessons that school really teach is apathy, which we covered in John Taylor Gatto's indifference argument, and then obedience and conformity. And I think obedience and conformity, um, let's take obedience first. So I, I don't think we can question at all that school's ultimate purpose is to teach people to be obedient to arbitrary authority. What say you, Zach? Oh, I mean, you just watch how children interact with adults in school or they interact with adults in the real world. They either interact with them in one of two ways, especially in the real world, either entirely and completely insolent as if rebelling against some sort of imposed system on them or just entirely and completely subservient as if they're like subhumans. And just watch how children are organized in schools, right? They are organized in lines. They're organized by their last names in lines. They're, they have to walk in lines. They have to ask to use basic bodily functions to go to the bathroom, to even bring a snack with them somewhere. Uh, playtime is scheduled into the day of work rather than the other way around. It, it's, it's undeniable that it's an obedience-based system. Uh, when you want to make the leap that it's designed to create obedience with people, I mean, that's just a factual question. Do people who go through school tend to be more obedient? And what is the stated purpose of the design of the system? And if we go back and we look at numerous social thinkers from, you know, Johann Fichte up through Horace Mann, up through uh, Carnegie Rockefeller, uh, and even more recent uh, thinkers in the United States, you see that the main purpose is to create, it's usually put behind some sort of language like, productivity or language like um you know civic duty something like that mm -hmm. kind of veil it a little bit but it's essentially to create people who are obedient to a larger cause yeah and you could see how just about every institution in our society uh would crave an obedient uh citizenry you know whether right. that's and, and the then, government and, or our financial institutions or our and, workplace and again that, that's not that doesn't have to sound as conspiratorial as it does to a lot of people the thing is if you, if you think about it yourself if you were this person who was trying to design any kind of system, right, you are probably going to look at it from a central planner's perspective where you get to see it's a big chessboard, right? And you get to move the pieces along on the chessboard. Now, imagine if some of those pieces got up and decided to do something other than what you wanted them to do. It'd become a very, 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 very hard game of chess for you to play. You'd likely lose. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing it from the central planner's perspective, you're doing it from the person who's designing its perspective, every incentive is there for them to create a system like this and to, for them to create a system like this from birth as well. You want it to be a system where people don't even know anything that's indifferent to them, They that any attempt at living life differently is seen as foreign is seen as unnatural 
Mm-hmm. And so if we if going back to our de-schooling theme of how this has actually affected real people or you, the listener, you know, you have to almost ask yourself what that obedience training did to your relationship, either with how you view commerce or how you view the government or how you view your employer or how you and uh, how you view the the market economy. Yeah. If if that, you're constantly frustrated uh, because you constantly feel like you have to be uh, behaving in, in certain I, ways, you need to constantly be asking somebody for permission. I yeah. think that's really what it boils down to. It's the permission based mindset. You need to ask somebody for permission for you to get a new job or to quit your job or to travel abroad. You need to make sure oh, that you get a visa, you get your passport. You can't even leave a certain region that you're in unless you get permission from somebody else first. And it doesn't need to be in, in this hierarchical kind of mindset as well. It could just be you want to go and get certified in a new skill, right? Well, what's stopping you? Most people, they need some sort of outside affirmation to actually put them over the edge. And that's, I think, when we're talking about de-schooling, I think that's the particularly nefarious part of this obedience-based mindset is that it's it implies obedience to some sort of authority, but that authority doesn't actually have a face. Oftentimes, it's something that somebody has internalized themselves. It's this idea that, well, why had someone has someone given me permission to go do these things? And it creates it creates a group of people that are easily manageable, right? In a very scientific, manageable kind of way. Uh, and it is perfect for, if we again look historically, it's perfect for this kind of system of Taylorism, right? That if you are trying to design an office or if you're trying to design a society or just trying to design a neighborhood, you want people to have to at least come to you first to give to ask for permission. You don't have to be some maniacal despot like a, like a Mussolini or Hitler. You could be a very, very benevolent one that would essentially give everybody permission if they came and asked for it. But you want them to ask for it first. So people internalize this and it makes it difficult for them to lead their own lives. Mm-hmm. Well, this let's let's move right into conformity, uh, the the third lesson, because it, it almost goes hand in hand with obedience in in some ways. Is yep. that we want to be uh, the same same as everyone? So even asking permission to live differently, uh, we, we see that people, you know, it, it feeds into the the conformity and the obedience. You know, feeds into that conveyor belt type mentality where. I, well, I must must go to college, then I must get this this certain amount of job, and I must consume money this this certain way. You know, I must own X amount of cars, uh, live in this particular house. And so the conformity, again, talking right to the the aspiring de-schooler, both, you know, the, this might be seriously affecting your ability to make decisions about your own life because of this constant wanting to ask for permission and then this constant paying to have the you know the approval and to conform to others well it's this it's this old idea right that you don't know what you don't know so the particularly difficult thing about conformity in my mind is the thing that we noted in the in the first half of the episode is this kind of mimetic idea is that if you don't actually have some sort of reason why you want certain things that's connected to the things that you value and you don't know why you value those things or you why you hold those values then chances are you just want these things because that's what other people want right 
you want the car, you want the house in the certain neighborhood, you want the job in the certain neighborhood, you want this, this certain sense of voting for or against one person, because that's what other people want. And if you apply this logic to everybody in a group, you can see why it becomes really problematic because everybody wants what everybody else wants, but nobody really knows what they themselves want, which can be really, really distressing for someone, especially when they're trying to think about, okay, what do I need to do in life that does or does not require permission? Because if you're just liking or pursuing things that other people want, then to whom should you be asking permission in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that this this uh, feeling of asking for permission or needing to conform is got to be a huge source of unhappiness for many, many people. Well, there's, there's you know, Brett has a great video series of clips from Gatto's Underground History. So uh, if you're listening to this, go on YouTube and look up the one uh, titled The New Dumbness, which I think is phenomenal. But it, it's Brett narrating Gatto. But Gatto makes this point that a lot of people think that they know what they want in life and or they think they know what they're pursuing in life until some particular jarring event comes out of left field and kind of breaks the pattern that they've fallen into, right? And that could be uh, a corporate downsizing that makes them lose their job. It could be an, an unexpected and particularly nasty divorce or maybe some kind of illness or something like that. And they see, oh, it turns out all the things I wanted all along aren't actually the things I wanted. We see this, especially in men, we see this with uh, midlife crises, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I, need to, I need to assert my control over my life because the power of my ability to assert control over my life is is waning with my age. I'm going to go do something that I think I want. Um, and we see this in quarter life crises with more and more young people. They come out of college or they come out of grad school and they or they come out of the military and they don't know what they've been pursuing. They've just been pursuing what other people have been pursuing. And although this kind of schooling framework is around them in many different ways in society outside of school, it's not explicitly around them anymore, and they, the bottom just kind of falls out for them. Yeah. Well, so the, the frustrating part of being in those, those phases is that you just almost it's natural to t- think of it as just a state of nature and not yeah. something that you, were, uh, you know, that you were taught over the course of, of 13 or 16 years. And, you know, once it can be empowering to not feel like a, a, a victim of these events if all of a sudden you realize that this wasn't just um, a set of circumstances that happened to you. It was something that was purposely ingrained in you as a child. We have some more, I want to call them more tactical or, or more practical things that school has inflicted upon most people that right. aren't um, the, these high-level uh attributes that, that yeah, we've been talking a lot in, in abstracts of oh it affects your relationship with authority in these ways or it makes this kind of permission-based mindset which are all true things but if you can't move beyond those kinds of abstracts we can we can point to solid things you could think that we're totally crazy and we're totally coming out of left field here and there are other things that we can point to and say these aren't exactly the most beneficial things to both you or to the people around you mm-hmm so let's just um, let's go back to the classroom right now, and you know imagine ourselves uh, sitting you know sitting in our rows and having that you know that one teacher a year when we were in elementary school or that's those six teachers we had during high school, and realize that 
we were exposed to for the majority of our waking day to extremely limited viewpoints. We've purposely, I'm going to go through these quickly, but then we should revisit. Um, you know, we purposely removed old and young people from society and from interacting with each other and also from interacting with the, the mainstream, uh, you know, middle-aged adult. Uh, our, our whole view of society and history is often framed in the context of, you know, history as government, as the great man theory, presidents in war. We've always been given extremely limited political and societal views. Um, it, when it comes to something like a, an election, we we know exactly that it's either left or right, and the uh, there's you know, no really other alternative besides you know voting into the system. And for most the most point, uh, controversy is completely avoided in the, the classroom. So this is all of this we realize, um, especially anyone who's done any exploration, you know, post school that we were fed extremely limited viewpoints. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that one of the most obvious yet also one of the most hidden uh, examples of limited viewpoints that the school system creates for people is, and this is also a point that Gatto alludes to in a couple of his essays, uh, but doesn't really hit home on that when you think about it, when you're around family, uh, you know, we're recording this right after Thanksgiving, so some people could think of it in that kind of context, you begin to start to see it or if you're ever around in groups of people with large age groups in them. But it's that school removes young people from middle-aged people and it removes middle-aged people from old people as well. You kind of have this weird society that uh, that evolves where the present is the only thing you focus on. And that is either as a child, when you are in sixth grade, everybody else in sixth grade is the same age as you or about the same age as you learning from the person in front of you and the viewpoint of that person in that place and times perspective on the past and on the future. Uh, you don't actually go out and talk to somebody who maybe, you know, lived through the Vietnam War and can tell you about different aspects of the Vietnam War or has lived in your community over the last 20 or 30 years and can tell you, all the little things, the nuances that were picked up from the little spontaneous orders that erupted throughout the neighborhood, you lose this kind of connection to the past and this connection to the future. You have a, a group of people, and if you're a child and you don't associate with old people, or meaning people who are like your parents' age, then when you're your parents' age, you're going to have a very, very difficult time associating with people who are even older than you, which I think in part is what leads to so many uh, elderly people being put into homes and being removed from the rest of the society around them. So you get a society that's perpetually stuck in the present. It's very, very difficult for you as a person or for you uh, as a member of your community to reflect on the past and to learn from the past and the people who've lived through that past and also to look to the future and to plan for that future. And I think that's a particularly pernicious uh, way of viewing the world because we all get old <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and we all are young at one point. Excellent point, yes. I think uh, another disservice that school has done to most of us is that these limited viewpoints are also often seen as being sort of holistic in scope, uh, as if as if these, these are the, the subjects and the viewpoints that exist, and perhaps we've been exposed to everything. And so it can be very frustrating as a schooled person to suddenly learn uh, new, new truths um, such that history isn't just a, a sequence of presidents and wars, uh, or or that the that the way that uh, society is structured now is is you know not 
the only way it can be. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think one of the most valuable things that somebody can do is to go back and read the memoirs of me, read memoirs and read autobiographies, especially of significant people before they're significant and of people during their time who you normally wouldn't read of in your history classes, in your history textbooks, because then you at least kind of get a, a slightly different perspective on what that time was like. Uh, that I know for myself, when I'm trying to learn about the past, the most valuable kinds of literature to pursue are those written by people who were there. And they don't necessarily need to be significant people. If you're actually reading a biography rather than an autobiography, though, well, that's something that, yeah, the autobiography, there's an incentive for the author to blow themselves up and to uh, make their story sound better than it is. But the biographer wasn't actually there. Okay, let's move on to the next one, which is... Uh, that school is a bad use of time and a, and a general inconvenience. And what school did to you was that it, it tried to justify taking away your your ability to manage your own time and to find your own ways of um, of, of living. So it, it ruined opportunity cost. So schooling, that time could have been spent doing something more valuable like learning something that you loved or learning skills that were useful. It was a huge waste of time. It's, I don't know who, who determined that school would be eight hours a day, five days a week for 13 to 18 years or whatever. We can't have school. We can't actually have school set up in such a way that parents would have to find some kinds of yeah. ways to watch their kids. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, is kind of even a sadder thing. If, if, if we look at our, at our, aspiring d schoolers to be trying to heal themselves heal themselves it's just tragic that we had this huge time asset that that was wasted so poorly and not only that but it was partially inflicted upon us by the two people who are supposed to love us unconditionally and the most um that's tragically sad you also in this this waste of time and this this lack of ability to manage your time you probably lost a lot of sleep and you were exhausted. And Zach, you, you were telling me that this can even affect us, affect our biochemistry. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, what this is like on the hormonal side for young women, but I know for young men, for men in general, you need to sleep in order to produce the optimum, um, optimal amount of testosterone. And if you can imagine a teenager uh, being sleep deprived, they're probably not producing as much testosterone when they should be producing uh, the proper amount while they're growing up. So it, it has this interesting kind of biochemical effect of actually emasculating men. <laughs> uh, and emasculated men are much, much easier to manage. The, the lack of you know, sleep that school imposes upon children, which is, is very real, by the way. The kids in my neighborhood uh, have to usually get up at 5 or 5.30 in, in order to make the bus. Oh, I mean, I, I've been spending these last couple of days, Jeff, with uh, several young children under the age of 10 and just seeing them in the morning when they wake up, they're 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 zombies. It it's it's sad. You know, there's they don't know anything else when it comes to the morning. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's this is training for the rest of your life to not really believe that you should be in charge of your own, you know, sleep consumption oh. schedule. Oh, I, I remember even just waking up on Saturdays. If I woke up too much later than when school started, I would feel panicked. I would feel stressed out. I would feel like, oh, no, I slept in. 
I am wasting the day away, even though no one was managing my schedule on that day. Also, all of your free time, whether it's vacation or playtime, is strictly regulated by the schooling environment. So we just get used to being told like when we're allowed to have leisure, uh, even even if it doesn't meet up with our, our natural rhythms. Uh, so in the schooling system has dumbly even makes you know entire communities or enti- the entire state take their vacation at the same time mm-hmm. so that uh you know your plane tickets cost more the the lines at the the theme park are more, are are longer and more expensive but we just sort of take this uh arbitrary uh construction of of our of our leisure time uh as being something that's that's told to us you know in this case by the government yeah um, or you, or you, you go and you ask for permission. Oh, I want to take my kids out of school for three days to go on vacation, and the school will either give you an excused or an unexcused absence based on that. <laughs> and then, lastly, and I don't think people realize this enough, but removing children uh, from their families can probably have uh, deleterious effects. The whole institute institution of the family is almost completely destroyed by having children away from them. Uh, you know, the 40 hours per week, and then having that scrap of time that is left with the family being this, usually this stressed amount of time, you know, get up, get in the car, you know, eat your breakfast, you know, pick pick the kids up from soccer, you know, force them yeah, to eat, I, do your homework, I, I, go to bed. I've given a name to this because when children are in, I, I wanted to hit on this in an earlier episode, and I don't think I did. When children are at school, I remember learning about this concept when I was a child because I, I being, I guess, like a, a natural uh, rebel for whatever reason, at one day I actually told a teacher or the principal, somebody I really can't remember, like, you're not my parent, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you're not my parent. You're someone who's just kind of like appointed over me. And they explained to me, actually, we have this concept called in loco parentis which is this kind of legal concept that for the eight hours of the day while you're at the school, we are legally and functionally your parents, which, first of all, that's just a generally terrifying idea. And the dynamic you just described, Jeff, and you've been one of the one of the best people at actually describing this because you can see it if you watch any families where the children spend an inordinate amount of time in school. The amount of time that they spend at home is not family time. It's very, very rare for it to be family time. Add into the element that so many people do not have family dinner together, that they do not actually go on vacations with each other, that people, they rush home, the the parents rush home from work, the kids rush home from school or from soccer or from baseball, whatever they're at, from band. The kids start doing their homework, the parents are grumpy, they order out dinner, everyone eats it while they're over their laptops or over the TV. Uh, the homework, the parents argue with the children to get their homework done and to get to bed on time. And then they argue with them and literally have to pull them out of bed when they wake up in the morning. Well, it sounds like to me in that case that the school isn't acting as like the surrogate of the parent, but the parent is acting as the surrogate of the school. Yeah. So you get this idea of like in loco scholas, which and if you're looking at it more from like a Spanish perspective, it actually means in crazy school. But from the Latin perspective, that the parents are acting in place of the school, uh, which is a really scary concept when you start to look at the other ways in which school kind of breaks down the institution of the family. That the parents don't even know their kids by the time they're they're 17, 18 years old. They feel like they, they're just cohabitating in a building with another adult. 
And it's completely normalized because the parents had the exact same experience uh, when they were kids. Right, so people just kind of dismiss it as, oh, well, this is just part of growing up. But it's actually a feature of schooling. And so going back to our aspiring de-schoolers, you know, how much frustration is in your life because you feel like your sleep schedule isn't on yours, uh, that your leisure schedule isn't doesn't belong to you? Uh, how how much more estranged or uh, distant from your parents could you have been had had you been raised, you know, with with a more intimate family life? And just in general, you know, how, how much of your day to day behavior has been ruined because of what school set in place? Well, it's it's also interesting because I think there's a lot of value wrapped up in parents actually being able to have conversations with their kids, right? And the only time you actually get the time to do this in this kind of eight hours a day plus, you know, three or four hours of extracurriculars plus everything else kind of uh, framework is on the weekends. And when it's so rare and the only time available is maybe one or two days on the weekends, if parents actually want to talk to their kids or vice versa, it's weird. It's taken out to it should be the norm or it should be something that's just like people talking to other people. But for them to actually sit down and have a conversation with them, it's more like that the dreaded, like, oh, we need to have a talk kind of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know we're talking about uh, de-schoolers here, but with, with my family, with uh, both me and my wife home 24-7 and the kids all home being unschooled, uh, we get a tremendous amount of time through the day. Even if, if it's not, you know, active conversation, it's just the, the ability to live together and talk whenever we need to. At the same time, they have... W- you know, uh, a tenfold more amount of time to be private as well, mm-hmm. which is another thing we we talked about in the, the the Gatto about the surveillance, but the the lack of privacy is something that that was robbed of of us as being school children. Let's move on to sort of the what I'm saying: controlled and ruined feelings. This first one, the lack of happiness, seems absolutely criminal to me. And I don't think it's it's a controversial thing to say that school generally makes kids unhappy. I think it would actually be controversial to a lot of people. Really? Because yeah, I, I do. Uh, because if you watch children drudge, like trudge off to school, yes, they they look miserable. But you, if you talk to a lot of people who are trying to convince themselves that this is something natural that they should be putting their children through, it's usually defended in this kind of like, oh well, that's where their friends are kind of context, right? Because Mm -hmm. the time at home or the time in the community or the time in the neighborhood, however you want to define that, has been robbed of its ability to actually actually provide or its expectation, the expectation that it will provide the context through which children will actually get to know people and get to become social creatures. Even though if you actually talk to children who don't go to school, they're usually much more capable of talking to adults than children who do go to school. They're going to tell you, well, it's the it's the place where they're allowed to go and they're allowed to see their friends and be happy. So I, I think we have to take a step back and emphasize the controlled feeling capacity, right? That people don't get to be happy at school in the sense that they get to pursue their passions or they get to pursue their interests at a level of depth that people need to pursue things in order for them to actually be fulfilled. Well, and then I, I would just like to ask the listeners, you know, were you happy in school? It would, did, did you find it to be a place where, ha- you know, happiness was, in, you know, was flourished and, and 
your happiness was taken into account. The other the other side of this, what I'm saying, lack of happiness is boredom, mm-hmm. and boredom might be one of the worst features uh, imposed upon children at school, in my opinion. Well, because when people are bored, there's a couple there's a couple really bad things that uh, arise from that. One is if they're bored and they're not. They're bored and they're constricted, right? Like as they are in school, imagine a child sitting at a desk in a row of desks in a classroom, just like daydreaming, right? They're not actually able to go pick something up and explore the thing that they're thinking about. They might be doodling, right? And some teachers will actually punish children if they are daydreaming or doodling or doing something other than the classwork during the uh, amount of time that the class is given. So... The boredom is, on one hand, it's particularly nefarious because it's this kind of constricted boredom where people aren't able to go pursue things that they find interesting. You know, I've talked to a number of people who told me that one of the most valuable tools for them is to induce their own kind of boredom, right? For them to go for a walk or to just have some time alone because then an idea hits them. They're able to go. They're able to start writing about the idea. Maybe they leave a note to themselves. They start working on it. Children are able, aren't able are able to do that, not as a function of them being children, but they're not able to do it as a function of them being stuck in this controlled environment. On the other hand, it's also a really shallow kind of boredom because there's so much stimulation throughout the day on, on like a macro view, you know, going class to class every 39 minutes as the bell rings, having to raise their hands, stand up, sit down having all this kind of stimulation in and out of them, that they don't learn how to engage in that productive boredom that I just that I just talked about. Mm-hmm. It's it's this very kind of, uh, I, I think it's a rather existentially deadening kind of boredom, more like an ennui. It's like, oh, well, I'm bored. My life has no purpose, nothing that I can pursue right now. So even, even with uh, boredom being endemic, there's also stress. So just the entire... Uh, system of of grades and and motivations can create a tremendous amount of st- uh, stress for some children. And uh, yeah, I think going back to what I, I just said, it it's, is this sense of envy. There's this weird existential dread associated with it. It's it's kind of the Sisyphusians pushing the rock up the side of the mountain just to see it roll back to the bottom again, doing that over and over, day in and day out. I know as a child, I was fortunate to have a couple people who one provided outlets to me even through in the school like i noted before i had a teacher who i could just go to her room as a child and it was essentially like free reign for me to explore anything that i was interested in i I was very very fortunate in that regard um but at the same time i i also had people who pointed me to like okay if you do well in school they're going to a leave you alone and b like maybe you'll be able to get something at the end of the tunnel a lot of kids don't have that. They either don't have somebody pointing that out to them or they don't have – their interests just don't align with that like mine did. And I, I still think like there's a large amount of de-schooling that I need to do to myself. So it's this – yeah, it's this, it's this kind of like soul-crushing crushing boredom combined with stress. Mm-hmm. Imagine yourself in a mine just chipping away the rocks day in and day out. And some people, they get gold stars for chipping the rocks better than other people, but they're still at the end of the day just chipping rocks. Also, okay, moving on at school, we talk about that's where your friends are, but that's also where massive amounts of peer pressure happen and also bullying as yep. we uh, even see on TV. This is an interesting one. Real. 
This is an interesting one to me because a lot of people will point to like you will point out that bullying primarily happens in the school context. And on top of that, it primarily happens in the uh, age stratified school context. Right. So if you actually look at classes or you look at schools that have less age uh, division and stratification, there's usually less bullying. The example given uh, for the Sudbury schools, for example, of which, you know, Dr. Peter Gray has studied is that when you have this dynamic where you have people who are 16 years old and people who are six years old in the same room, there's an incentive for the 12 year old to one, look up to the 16 year old and for the 16 year old to intervene if the 12 year old's bullying the 10 year old, right? There's a lot more of these kind of like social norms and mores that arise that, that are actually kind of like violence reduction mechanisms. You don't have that as much when everybody is in the same exact context as each other and they've only ever known that same exact context. And I, I just find this an interesting one because people will come back to you and say, well, there's bullying in the workplace. And to me, that just seems like an obvious example of elements of school finding its way mm -hmm. into the workplace. Yep, exactly. right? <laughs> so this um, all sort of comes to a head when we we realize that school is creating a bad socialization environment and a stunning lack of individual individuation and and you were even saying you had a, a hypothesis of whether this creates codependency later in life yeah i, I think that it, it does certainly create some kind of codependency now whether or not that's codependency with the parents like the the kind of freudian classical codependency where the the mother and the child like are extremely dependent on each other and extremely controlling of each other. I don't know. Uh, but I think it certainly creates this kind of system where people look to some sort of sense of authority for their meaning, kind of going back to the permission-based mindset, right? Mm -hmm. If you never actually have the opportunity to move, be your own person separate from your company, separate from your business, separate from uh, your military, your country, separate from your school, you're not going to actually develop that sense of individuation, which people then look to these institutions. And sometimes, as we learned during the Great Recession, those institutions break break apart. Like I know people, I Jeff, I know people very well personally who they identified their entire selves with their companies and their companies either totally broke apart or just laid them off. And they have no sense of identity beyond that. One of the things I've come to appreciate more and more as I've met different people and just gotten a little bit more experience in, in my short life thus far is organizations and groups of things and where that are totally removed from the school context and totally removed from uh, the work context, right? And especially if these are organizations or groups that there is no ulterior motive. There's no obvious ulterior motive for people to get involved in them. And they have this large span of ages available to them because those are very, very difficult for people to find, right? If you're working, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day of the week, you probably can't even like go to the gym. I, I think the gym is probably one of the few places where you might be able to find this, but it's probably hard for you to even go to the gym and find this kind of community. And school has this weird way, any large institution, but I think school is the largest institution in most people's lives has a weird way of crowding out other communities. Mm -hmm. It's uh, interesting that you bring up the gym because our next one on our list is health and nutrition. Uh, I, for one, you know, don't think necessarily having children sit down for the majority of the day, uh, passively being lectured to, 
is is you know the best use of their physical activity. You know, I was and, uh, I and, was reading a book earlier this year uh, on sitting and the deleterious effects of sitting. You know, since the the big trend right now is standing desks, which uh, I've I've actually used a standing desk and I, I very much enjoy it. But the author actually opens up the book by uh, talking about kindergartners and third graders and noting how there have been studies that have done that have shown that if you follow children from kindergarten to third grade and you follow children who go to school and they sit and they're hunched over their desks, as you imagine children might be working on their work and children who don't do that, by the time they're all in third grade, if you watch them run the children who have been sitting at the desks do what's called heel striking, which is really, really bad for running. It's where you your heel hits the ground first and then you roll through your foot. And it's really, really bad for your Achilles heel. It's really, really bad for the muscles in your leg. It's really, really uh, it's really bad on the bones in your feet and in your leg. And the children who have been not sitting, they, they don't necessarily need to be standing, but the children who have been not sitting they run how you're supposed to run, which is with the ball of your foot hitting the ground first. So there's already a huge, huge impact of school just from the anatomical and physiological setup of the day right there. And then when we go to um, beyond setting good behaviors and exercising or using your body, uh, nutrition is something where the, the eating <laughs> schedule is pretty much you know dictated to you. Uh, you really have, as a student, probably very little control of you know how and when you eat and we probably don't have to uh spend too much time criticizing school lunches as i mean well first of all yeah that they literally look like prison lunches but uh do you remember the food pyramid jeff Mm -hmm. i remember the food pyramid and the primary way i remember the food pyramid is i remember it being beaten into my head as a child in elementary school I remember seeing a gigantic poster of it that that some government agency had provided to my school that was in the line. Again, another example of standing in line and just waiting and everyone getting the same exact thing while we were standing in line at the cafeteria. I remember seeing that and, and at the bottom, all these carbohydrates, right? And then fats and oils all the way at the top. And you want to avoid those as much as possible. And lo and behold, as we're doing more and more repeatable research in this area, Turns out that's exactly incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they um, they changed the model every because when I, actually when I was a kid, we didn't have the pyramid. Um, I, I'm 20 years older than you. Uh, we had the four food groups, which then became the pyramid. And the kids now get, I think, a picture of a plate now post like a pyramid. Light, that's kind of like a pie chart, right? Yeah. No, but they're still they're still taught the same the same BS that's just entirely wrong for how the human body is designed to process energy. Uh, this has been one of the most interesting things to me as well is that children are first of all fed the wrong kinds of things throughout the day and then when they are allowed to actually exercise and actually use their bodies it's in it's in this extremely controlled kind of fashion right either they're very young it's at recess where they're not allowed to get too loud i remember being yelled at because things got too loud at recess they're not allowed to get too loud they're not allowed to get too rowdy or it's in physical education class, it's in PE class, it's in gym, where you oftentimes are doing the wrong things in order to achieve the optimal kind of health output. So like, I remember uh, there being kids in my school, a little bit overweight, so the school would recommend to them, you know, that you do this kind of cardio workout, right? You go running. And running is better than doing nothing if you're overweight, but Mm -hmm. 
what you really need to be doing is uh, this. And again, this is especially true in the case of men, but it also applies to women. What you really need to be doing is you need to be doing some kind of strength training, but schools don't really specialize in that. And if they do, if they do have some kind of, you know, like free weight gym or anything like that, it's usually for the millions of taxpayers dollars that are taken to support the local high school football team. So children aren't even actually taught at any age, whether it's as a young child or as an adolescent child, how to properly treat their bodies for health and strength. Mm-hmm. Agree. So let's move on to uh, the next category, which is that school is bad preparation for adulthood. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read a couple of themes to you and then I'll let you re- respond. Uh, there is useless credentialing in school. Uh, almost everything that, whether it's your diploma or your report cards, uh, become completely useless as an adult. Yet they're seen to be the most important things when you are in school. There's a mandatory march to college where all students are told that if they do not attend college, that they will be destitute and losers for the rest of their life. School very much is an extension of childhood and a postponement of adulthood so that people feel like dependent children for much longer than they really have to. Uh, it's even even working as a teenager now it seems to be harder and harder to do and often discouraged, uh, often with the argument that the schoolwork is actually what's going to prepare them for a career uh, more so than actual, you know, actual participation in commerce. Uh, there's very limited or meaningless networking, meaning the people that you meet are not necessarily going to translate into a productive and valuable network, be that professional or social. And then as we, we talked a little bit before, there's very little exposure to varying age groups and adults, and adults are very rarely to be treated as friends or someone to have a meaningful relationship with. Adults are seen as authority only. So, I, so Zach, I just put out a, quite a few things there. Boatload of content, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, if we just go down through the list, let's start with the useless credentialing. And you don't have to be someone who believes in this this uh, signaling theory of education, right? That the reason why you go to school, the primary reason why most people go to school is to get a credential. They don't actually go to pick up skills. Uh, and this is especially true at the collegiate level. We talked about this before, that if you ask uh, any group of, you know, college freshmen, sophomores, juniors, or seniors, if they'd still be there, but they don't get the credential at the end of the day, nobody will raise their hands, right? And the ones who will raise their hands are either lying or they should become professors. This is more and more true, I think, at the high school level as well. Everyone knows that a high school diploma is not going to get you a job. I know young people who don't even have their high school diplomas, and they're able to get jobs because they're able to go above and beyond that credentialing, that entirely useless kind of credentialing. In fact, Telling me that you are a good student doesn't really tell me anything besides the fact that you can listen to arbitrary commands fairly well, right? Mm -hmm. And in some organizations, that is extremely valuable, right? Like if I were some product uh, division, some, yeah, some product division manager for GM, I probably want people who can listen to my commands fairly well. But the reality is that organizations like that are going to be making fewer and fewer of the decisions and they're going to be creating less and less of the value on a day-to-day basis going forward. So any kind of credentialing that does happen in school needs to be a a kind of credentialing that actually has some sort of basis in the real world. I was sitting at, uh, you know, Carnegie Mellon University the other day in Pittsburgh and overhearing a conversation between two uh, older uh, staff members there who 
both are they're on the education side of things they're not on the research side, side of things and even they admitted and they're not like radical people like jeff and i even they admitted to each other the reality is that we are marching from a credentials-based economy into a skills-based economy and the number of people i know who are have been able to land jobs because if they have a credential what the credential shows is that they actually know a skill is much greater than the people I know who are able to land jobs because they say, oh, I have a degree. Uh, the number of resumes or cover letters I've read where people say, I should be hired for this job because I have a marketing degree is unfortunately fairly high, but the number of those people who are actually hired is very, very low. And you've done hiring, Jeff. You, yeah. you can you can testify to this. Yeah, we've we've actually removed our um, any kind of years ago, we removed the um, requirement for a college degree. Because it really it really taught us nothing about the the potential employee. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess in this this whole discussion here, we've already gotten the mandatory march to college. If that college degree, if that college credential does actually signal that the skills that you know, then and it and if it is the best way of you getting those skills, then great, go pursue it. I would bet you ninety nine percent of time, ninety nine times out of a hundred, ninety nine percent of the time, that's not going to be the case. But there is this mandatory march to college. The number in of Praxis participants I talk to who tell me that when they told their guidance counselors or when they told their teachers that they were going to go do Praxis, which it do, is not college, and the negative responses they got are is astonishing. You know, my colleague Derek, he says that his guidance counselor uh, looked at him like like a, a deer looks at a train coming on, like an oncoming train, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's There's every incentive at play for you if you are a relatively intelligent, you don't even need to be intelligent anymore, for if you're a relatively intelligent, hardworking young person to go to college. If you want to do anything else, unless you have a particularly like mold-breaking kind of teacher or guidance counselor, you are going to get so much disapprobation, there's going to be such a strong social pressure against you that you're not, it's going to feel like it's mandatory. All your friends are doing it. That's where people are able to essentially go party for four years because you can get these federally subsidized student loans. Why would you want to actually have to go make money and support yourself right after that? It's it's a it's an extremely toxic mindset to put in anybody who wants to do anything besides this, the status quo. And that's and that also rolls in really well into this idea of the extension of childhood and the postponement of adulthood. You know. I had a, a blog post a couple months ago, and Jeff, I, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I would be, I'd love to hear if you did, and I'd feel very bad for you if you actually did. But so I was giving a talk at uh, Florida Gulf Coast University here in Florida, and I remember seeing a sign on the door, and the sign on the door said "Parent Free Zone," and this was to a lecture hall at this university. And I laughed at first, thinking like, "Oh, this must be some sort of joke," and then I thought about it. This isn't a joke. This is because parents are calling professors. This is because students at this university, which is usually thought of as like the beginning of adulthood, are being treated as Mm -hmm. children or they're being treated as students, which is what we identify children with. And I just thought to myself, holy crap, if I ever hired anybody whose parent called me after like a poor work review or after maybe coming in late to work one day or anything like that, I would immediately fire them. Like, I don't care if it's the parents' fault. Why would I want to have that kind of that kind of additional layer of uh, 
everything <laughs> on top of employing that person. I, I don't know. Have you ever had an employee like that? Yeah, no, I, I haven't run into an employee um, who ever had their parents call me. Uh, but I, I have worried about it uh, just just in terms of, of you know, if I, if I don't offer a certain benefit that um, there's going to be some parental disapproval. The if we talk to the taking these points to our our intended audience of the aspiring D schooler, again this this might be this mandatory march to college, this um, intense pressure to get a credential, and the inability to to truly become an effective adult can be a huge source of frustration for yeah. a lot of people, and I um I'm I'm going to say there's probably people who even make it into their their mid thirties who still have never quite felt like they've become an effective adult. Yeah. And I, I think that if you're looking for practical tips that you can take away from this section in particular, uh, I learn more about somebody from their LinkedIn profile and from a personal website that they have, than I can learn about them from any kind of credential that they have, uh, especially a large blunt credential, like a college degree. Now, if your credential didn't say like Salesforce Administration 201, that's entirely different, right? That's actually mm -hmm. a fairly specific set of skills that the organization, the company that is Salesforce has signed off on. So my practical advice would be go buy yourname.com. And if it's taken, then buy your name with the middle initial.com. Put up on there just a very simple about page that says who you are, what you've done, maybe a link to your LinkedIn profile, spend an hour on your LinkedIn profile. And if you do that, it's going to be better than 99% of the ones out there because most people, they just create it and then they never touch it. That's a more powerful mm -hmm. credential than the college degree. And that also goes when you're thinking about college. If you're a young person listening to this or you know young people listening to this, you can get more out of, you know, what, like $20 in two or three hours designing that website and that LinkedIn profile then I think you're probably going to get out of four years if you actually are pretty conscientious of how you spend your time. Mm. Yeah, so in I think it's going to be episode seven or eight. We're actually going to have an entire two-hour session talking about tactics people can use to stop to uh, remove the effects of school from their life. So we will hit that again for sure. So, Jeff, I, I want to talk, you know, before we, we wrap up, I really do want to talk about this idea of limited or meaningless networking. Um no, I, I do actually think it's interesting that I was introduced to you by somebody who went to your college, but it wasn't because you two went to the same college. You just happened mm -hmm. to have mutual interests and be and happened to live in the same town. Uh, how many times have you landed massive opportunities based on uh, your alumni network? That would be zero. Zero, and that's what I would expect. Yeah, and, yeah, I, and that, in my business, I've I've uh, probably worked with maybe 3,000 different clients. And yeah, not, not one of them came from uh, anything that had to do with college or high school. And most of your, most of your clients are based on referrals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all so, 100%. So if there's any world in which it would come off of like your alumni network from high school or from college, it would probably be that. And, and I find this, this, this a really interesting kind of argument for any level of schooling, whether it's K through 12 or for college, it's the networking element in I find it interesting because, you know, we use the alumni network example, but most people, one, they don't make use of their alumni network, or two, it's totally useless if they try to. But the people that they meet in school, the way I describe it is, if you imagine imagine a plane, right, and you have an x-axis and a y-axis, the x-axis is the one that runs along the horizon, the y-axis is the one that runs vertically, right? Along the x-axis 
is every or all these different interests, right? And along the y-axis going up and down is the stage of your career or the stage of life that you're at. Every, almost everybody you meet at school is going to be very close to you on that y-axis. It's very, very rare that you'll ever meet somebody and build a significant relationship with anybody who is, you know, 20, 30, 40 years older than you. And those are the people who, especially as a young person, they're the ones who are a valuable network to be working with, right? Because they're the ones who are able to refer you to maybe one of their friends who owns another company or does hiring. If your friend who is one year older than you writes a reference for you when you're 23, great. Like that, mm-hmm. that, doesn't, that yeah. doesn't really do all that much, right? So you build these very like horizontally diverse networks, but what you want is this this vertically one that, of people who are in different stages of their careers. I'll, I'll have to give school one positive as far as in sort of social networking is that some people do meet their girlfriend or wife or boyfriend or husband at school. Yeah. This, this kind of idea of a sort of mating, um, is, is a really interesting implication of school. There's a lot of, if you're interested in the kind of like inequality analyses out there, which I'm not for the most part, but one of the largest driving factors of, kind of like these bubbles that people fall into, right? These kind of like social bubbles where you really don't know anybody who's outside of like a certain pedigree. One of the biggest factors of that is a sort of mating where like you go to Princeton, you marry someone from Princeton, all your friends are from Princeton, all your kids will go to Princeton someday. That does happen. And that's uh, that's really kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, it's also, um, it, it might be more... Uh, coincidence than necessarily causation uh oh yeah that you meet, you, I mean, you meet I, your wife at school i mean because that's this where you happen to uh to be you know right, for the yeah, entire no, time if i immersed myself myself and again like i i can do this no one's going to stop me if i like moved to oakland in pittsburgh and just like went to all the club meetings and sat in on a bunch of the classes at the university of pittsburgh and carnegie mellon uh chances are if i do that for four years at some point, I'm going to date somebody who goes to the University of Pittsburgh or Carnegie Mellon. I don't actually need to be enrolled there. Mm-hmm. It's just me immersing myself around those people. Okay, cool. So we have two more two more subjects uh, to finish up our what schooling did to you. And some of these might have a, a, a pretty significant impact on your day-to-day life. And the first one is, did school make you poor? Did it limit your ability to earn and did it ruin a potential relationship, a potential healthy relationship with commerce? And my my thought is absolutely. I, the the last place you're going to learn anything about, you know, working, productivity, value generation, uh, commerce, capitalism, business, etc., is within school. And that's sort of by design because you're going to be instructed by people who who don't have never engaged in those activities themselves. And overall, this is one of the most underserved, under-discussed topics within school, of the, both in the sense of useful skills on how to make money and how to be a, a productive part uh, of commerce, uh, as well as sort of a, a philosophical one, too, that even tends to vilify the idea of, of working in commerce and markets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a great essay uh, by Robert Nozick, the the philosopher uh, from Harvard, uh, called "Why Do Intellectuals Oppose Capitalism?" 
And if you and what it essentially boils down to at the end of the day is that people who succeed in school do not necessarily succeed in the real world. Uh, and when they do succeed in the real world, it tends to be in these very, you know, authoritarian, hierarchical kind of institutions, right? Mm-hmm. They don't tend to succeed in the ways that people become very, very successful, either spiritually or uh, professionally, right? Which is maybe in a bit more of an entrepreneurial work or with their families or whatever. There is there, The correlation isn't as strong there, right? So these people are people who kind of understand, hey, I did really well in school or, hey, I know this subject really well, but they don't actually become millionaires from it and that can cause them to have a a sort of contempt towards the system that is arranged that kind of way uh i i i would be fascinated in seeing gatto did this which i think is great i'd be fascinated in seeing a a classroom i wouldn't even want to call it a classroom but a an educational context in which children children not just teenagers but children are actually allowed to shadow uh people who engage in commerce right they're allowed to regularly, not once or twice a year. I mean, I the number of classmates I had from high school who never did this is astonishing to me. They're able to go, you know, sit around and follow someone who is a graphic designer for a couple of days or somebody who uh, runs the local pharmacy for a couple of days or somebody who runs a tech company or even a judge or a doctor or a lawyer. And the way that they would view work I, when they're done with that after 18 years would be so – or 12 years – would be so significantly different than the way that young people view work when they come out of uh, a system where it's, you know, fill, these, fill out these worksheets, do these tests. And I think they'd love work a lot more too. And when I say work, I mean like real productive behavior, right, not drudgery kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so going back to – as we talk to our – intended audience of aspiring de-schoolers, your actual relationship with commerce and your ability to earn income uh, may have seriously been restricted by your schooling. So if you are uh, having frustration with your ability to be valuable, to create create wealth, and to even, even your relationship with work itself, whether you do view it as drudgery or you view, view, it, view it as something to... Uh, to be embraced, you know, because because it has value and it has vibrance. All of this c- could very well be linked to your schooling. The people who come out to who they they know if they learn X, Y, or Z things that they, they can change careers or they can launch their own company or something like that, but they figure, oh, I'm done with school, it's too late for me, is really depressing. Uh, the reality is people can learn, they can learn well. There's, there's this myth that you can only learn really well up until like the age of 22 or 25 or whatever. I've heard varying numbers on this. The reality is that people can learn at any age. They just need reasons to learn. They need strong enough reasons and they need to not have these kind of debilitating or disempowering beliefs that they have, which I think that the, the idea that school is where you learn and school is where you prepare for the real world, even though it does have an astonishingly bad job of preparing you for the real world, is a really disempowering belief because you can do that anywhere. Once you realize it, it's, it's really, really empowering because you mm-hmm. can realize, you know, I, I, there, there's a lot of sadness and a lot of this stuff. And I, I don't want to get caught, too caught up in the, the kind of depressing elements of this because, one, that doesn't really help anybody without them actually taking action on it. And two, 
it's really, really empowering when you realize, hey, maybe a lot of the time I spent in school actually wasn't what was preparing me for the real world. Maybe it was actually the other things I did. That's more likely to make you engage in those other things that you did. And I think put you forward, um, put your best foot forward professionally, familially, uh, socially, intellectually. We, we were talking about the mandatory march to college and one of the flip sides of the mandatory march to college is the march to war. The last thing is that the whole career of soldiering, uh, I think, really needs to be supported by school to have it work. Because the, the idea of becoming a soldier to sign up for a small salary to shoot people and be shot at, uh, it, it can only, be, can only be, seem enticing to someone who has been indoctrinated from the schooling system and then who has that 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 constant threat of hey you're not going to go to college you can't be a loser uh, unemployed stinker for your whole life and so I don't even think I'm not sure how even viable the military would be without the school system. Well, you know, I, this is this is an interesting ethical issue. Is the military largely recruits you know when they've been through this kind of system even though they shouldn't be thought of as kids, they're essentially kids, the people who are recruited from to join the military in large, large swaths. I mean, military recruiters will go and they'll, they'll hang out outside of high schools uh, and sometimes actually come into them, right? And uh, if someone's going to join the military for whatever reason they're going to join it, I'll leave that up to them. That's fine. But I think that they should be people who are trusted to make other kinds of decisions in their lives. There's this there's this really weird infantilizing dynamic with young adults or old adolescents, if you want to think of them that way, uh, where they're not even allowed to think of what they want to do with their career. They're not allowed to think of what they if they want to be trusted to have a beer or to have a cigarette or do any of these number of things. But they are allowed to sign up and into this massive, massive commitment that is joining the military. And, you know, I, I think that school does certainly put those incentives in place. It's a system where if you do really well in it, maybe you're maybe you do really well in it intellectually, maybe you do really well in it physically, what have you, you're going to be funneled into one of a number of systems. And again, I don't mean this at all to sound nefarious. If you are the designer of a system where you have you have these large industrial interests, you have these large uh, defense interests, where you have these large gu uh, gubernatorial interests as well, you are going to want some 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 kind of feeder like this. I mean, I'll tell you, uh, for us with Praxis, we love finding organizations that are more likely to have people who are open to what we do, right? So like we like going to we like going to homeschooling conferences and talking to homeschoolers because they're more likely to think that hey, this is kind of a cool thing that you're doing. If I were a central planner or I were somebody who had their incentives lined up with the school system we have today, of course I would take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just something to be it's something to be really really cognizant of. And I'm not saying like if you're homeschooled you'll never join the military or uh, vice versa, but because I, I've met plenty of people who have, and I've also met a lot of people, Jeff, who they've gone, they've joined the military, and they've come out, and they've had radically, radically, radically different views on how society ought to work after spending mm -hmm. just a couple years in there. Well, so here, so to wrap up, we just spent the, over two hours uh, just completely explaining to hopefully everyone how much damage that schooling has done to to people. 
from everything from their sleep schedules to their emotional dependency to what they learned to how they view the world to how they have you know relationships with their family uh is there really any hope for anybody it's, it feels like we've have the schooling system has so thoroughly ruined every single person that that there really is no hope for for happiness or or flourishing in the future and that's where we end the podcast right there no no there absolutely is i mean jeff you and i have gone through this system and we are engaged in activities and exercises for lack of a better word every day that kind of helps us be cognizant of this 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 process of de-schooling and how it positively affects us i i i think that since I began the conscious system of de-schooling, of falling back in love with learning and understanding how that learning makes me a better person and makes me more valuable to my friends and my colleagues and my community, if you want to call that de-schooling, that it very well may be, that has been one of the most powerful steps that I've taken since leaving school. And I think that anybody can do this, whether they're a parent, whether they're currently a student, if they're in school, you know, sometimes you don't get a choice. Uh, oftentimes you don't get a choice. Or if they're somebody who is just listening to what we've been talking about, and they're like, man, yeah, exactly. I, I, I understand that useless credentialing. I understand the the health and nutrition effects that school has on me. I, I think it was largely a waste of time. There is hope. Thank you for joining us. You can share this podcast and learn more by going to www.deschoolyourself.com. You may promote this series by rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Host Zachary Slayback is the author of the book, The End of School. Jeffrey Till is the author of the book, Rise Above School. Both are available in hard copy and Kindle at Amazon.com.